It is Tuesday, April the 4th, 2023. Welcome in everybody to episode 83 of Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Pitching talk every single week here. We do it with the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn, the ace researcher, James Smythe, and myself, Justin Shackle, producer Dan Work with us for the ride as well. And we have not even had a full week of action yet in a season that lasts uh, six months or so, but that doesn't mean we can't decide what we like and what we don't like so far. And there's a lot to get to. So let's roll with it. David James, have we, uh, have we fallen into the season routine yet after five games or so? Starting to, I mean, off and running, right? I mean, it really is right back into the grind of things. Uh, we had a two hour and 25 minute game on Sunday night baseball in, in Arlington with the two to one game, the Rangers, uh, uh, and the Phillies. So, yeah, I mean, obviously everybody's all about the rules changes, the pitch clock, pitch timers, the headliner and has been. And we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. But to me, culturally, there seems to be a shift culturally in the running game. And I think we're going to continue to see this as organizations develop minor league players that are more athletic, more prone to run, taking more chances. And uh, the Yankees first one is Anthony Volpe. He's been trained to do this. We, we've seen this coming in the minor leagues as he stole, oh, I think, over 50 bags or around 50 stolen bases last year in the minor leagues. You know, the Yankees have a running coach named Matt Tallarico, who's kind of talked this style of a jump and a run style, a short lead and kind of bounce and get a running start. So, yeah, I think culturally we're seeing a real shift in, in the running game, more stolen base attempts. And to me, it's a mindset, a cultural mindset uh, more than it is kind of the rules changes. It's eye-opening. Stolen base attempts are up. Stolen base success rate, 84 for 100 over the first few days of the season. That's 84%. And <laughs> that stolen base success rate has already been as great as it's ever been in baseball history the last few years, around 75%. Big jump so far. We'll see how much of an increase we get as we get deeper into the season. But definitely running game on the uptick with the new rules. Yeah, that's what I'm most surprised in. Not the the rate. The success is wild. It's like almost, again, small sample size, very small sample size, but it's definitely too far in one direction. I'm wondering if we get a, like a return to, to the mean, at least with, with the success rate after oh so many games. But when you look at those numbers, and if you're a manager here, guys, like how could you not say, all right, let's let's uh, let's get the wheels going here on the bases. We got to test this out if you haven't done so already. Absolutely. And you know, the, the cat and mouse game and the, the you know, the sort of, um, you know, the, how do, how do the pitchers account for all this? How are they going to counter it? And you, obviously you've only got two pickoff moves before you're penalized on the third one, if you don't get him out. So yes, there's a strategy involved. Is there going to be more slide steps? Uh, to me, it still comes down to later in games where closers aren't used to uh, worrying about base runners as much over the last several years. I think that's where, Games could be won and lost in the last three innings with, with short relievers. I'm still anxious to see how that pans out over the next few weeks and a couple of months. But starting pitchers generally have more reps. They can work on it, work on slide stepping. They're maybe used to a little bit more of adjusting to, to fast base runners, uh, although that hasn't been the case over the last several years. is it, It's almost an afterthought, that stolen base. So it, pitchers are going to have to adjust. They will. There'll be more slide steps. There'll be – Guys working on their pickoffs, a strategy, holding the ball, playing with the pitch clock. But that, but that was the one thing that pitchers could do was hold the ball. And now that's limited, obviously, with the pitch clock. You can't hold the ball as long as you once could to freeze the runner at first base. So everything's geared towards encouraging base running, encouraging stolen bases. The onus is on the pitchers to make the adjustments back. All right, so we open the show with the uptick in stolen bases for sure. We're going to go around the league, touch on – a number of different pitching topics. We'll get into some Yankees discussion as well near the end. But as we record this episode, there are two teams in Major League Baseball that are still undefeated. It's the Rays and the Twins. First turn through the Tampa Bay rotation has been excellent. Uh, they, they've only faced the Tigers and Nationals, so put that into context here. But the Rays starters have allowed just one run in 23 innings of work so far. We thought that their pitching was going to be good. But could it be elite even without Tyler Glass now? 
It's eye-opening. It's a great point, Shaq. Uh, Jeffrey Spring striking out 12 in his first go-round after coming off of last year. I mean, what a great reclamation project he is, kind of a career scrap heap reliever. The Rays see something. They tweak his delivery. They find a little pitch design uh, uh, changes in terms of how he grips pitches, the shape of his slider, his change-ups better. All of a sudden, He's, he's a strikeout pitcher and a great year last year, a great debut this year. And then Rasmussen as well with, with a six shutout inning. So yeah. Wow. It's eye opening. They just, you, you have to be a believer now when you see the Rays and, and their pitching department and everything they do down there, top to bottom, the way they develop, the way they pitch design, very progressive approach. Uh, you, you have to tip your hat to the Rays organization all the way through. And yes, it's believable. That, that you do believe in their pitching now. It's it's not smoke and mirrors. It, it's just smart, good pitching design and taking pitchers that are undervalued and, and remaking them and making them better. Shane McClanahan is one of the best young starters in baseball. Cody, you brought up Springs and Rasmussen. Josh Fleming is going to be the five-man uh, coming up here. We do have to pump the brakes a little bit because it is the Tigers and Nats, but these guys are legit. Springs was a popular breakout pick. I don't think any of us had him on our on our breakout picks, but he was a he was a, a popular candidate. And um, Zach Eflin can't forget about him. He was the slacker who gave up the one run for the Rays. So an 0.39 ERA for Tampa Bay through the first four starts, and then you get Glass now. A good rotation gets even better. I know we, we've talked about some of these teams separately, but when you kind of sit back and think about how many contending teams are dipping into their starting pitching depth to begin the season, you, you do have the Rays with Fleming being the, the fifth starter here. Obviously, the Yankees, the Mets, the Braves, the Phillies, uh, the Dodgers, they're all piecing the rotation together to various lengths to, to begin this season. Obviously, Better to do that now than later in the year, but I don't think it's it's obviously ever good. But I'm definitely least concerned with the Rays out of the group that that I just mentioned as far as teams who have realistic title aspirations here in 2023. Um, there were uh, some injuries to a pair of Cy Young candidates in the NL East. I mean, we just previewed the season last week. We gave our Cy Young picks. I know Justin Verlander was was a name that we probably all considered. I did think that Max Fried was going to win NL Cy Young. Well, he threw less than 50 pitches in his first start due to a hamstring injury. And then even before Justin Verlander gets on the mound, he's placed on the injured list with what was being labeled as a low-grade Terrace major strain. So that's a oxymoron injury right there. But um, apparently he's still throwing at moderate intensity while still being evaluated for this injury. So it doesn't seem too serious. Neither one does, but which injury concerns you more, the freed hamstring or the Terrace major with Verlander? Well, I, I, once again, you almost have to see the MRIs to see the extent of the injury, especially hamstring. Now, one thing can lead to another with a hamstring can, you know, does that lead to him compensating as far as Max Freed, obviously with the hamstring can he maintain his throwing program without compromising, you know, his elbow or his shoulder? Yeah, that, that's the, that's something you always have to worry about as a pitcher. When you have a leg injury, do you compensate? Next thing you know, you put more pressure on your elbow or your shoulder. So you got to be careful with that. That worries me. Uh, the, the Terry's major, uh, you know, at first I, I thought it was Terry's minor. It's Terry's major. It's lower. It's connected to the scapula. He's throwing through it from what we hear. And, you know, Shaq, as you mentioned to me before, so if he's throwing through it, it's a lower injury away from the rotator cuff muscles. That makes me less worried. So uh, anytime, you know, you're in the bigger muscles in the scapular region, that that's better than, you know, labrum or something up higher around the cuff. So uh, I, you know, I, it's hard to say that's kind of a pick em. That's a toss up, but I'd worry about Freed's hamstring holding him back. Cause sometimes you want to push through and he's a young guy and he wants to be back out there. Be careful coming back because you can earn, you could hurt your arm when, when you're favoring your hamstring. Well, with Verlander, that's the one I'm most concerned about simply because he's 40 years old and he's got about 3,300 innings worth of miles on that arm. But at the same time, this is something that he said, if it was September, October, he'd be pitching through it. So my concern level is a little lower there. So if, if both of these guys, as great as they are, if they miss, 
a few starts a month. It's not that big a deal. The teams are good enough that they can paper over and, and still stay in contention until they get back. So uh, minimal concern for the time being. Yeah, minimal concern for me for, for both. I guess if you want to pick one, Verlander, for the reasons that you said, James, the mileage. I guess Terrace Major is closer to the arm, so uh, <laughs> that'll decide the, the toss-up there. David, I'm wondering for a pitcher, like outside of like the, the Grim Reaper injuries, right? Like shoulder, rotator, cuff, yeah. elbow. Which type of injury, I guess, spooks a pitcher most? Well, to me, it's, it's, it's the dreaded labrum right injury because that that is part of the decelerator you know uh when when slowing down your arm after you release the pitch what slows down your arm is kind of around the back of your shoulder and and the decelerator muscles so what they call so the labrum certainly is to me is something that's a it's tricky it's hard to fix uh it it can compromise the whole integrity of, of of the rotator cuff but i think what we found over the years is what's more important is how the scapula moves the, sh- the muscles around the shoulder blade and how efficiently they move and slide back and forth. And along with the Terry's uh, major injury that, that Justin Verlander has down in that region is much more important. And the training for those muscles has gotten much more extensive and much more pronounced. So, you know, that's something I always believe when I pitch, I always thought, man, the shoulder blade muscles, you know, around the scapula, I've got to get those feeling right. I train those a lot. I always thought those are really important. So we used to concentrate 20 years ago on what Dr. Job called the Dr. Job exercises, little three pound dumbbell rates, or you'd see guys shaking, trying to do their little rotator cuff work. And uh, they've kind of, you know, even though some pitchers still do work with that, it's, it's less of a focus now and more on the big muscles around, around the shoulder blade. More tone of the slab coming up. But first I need to tell you about HelloFresh because it is taking the hassle out of mealtime this spring by delivering pre-portioned ingredients and easy-to-prepare recipes right to your door. Skip the checkout lines because HelloFresh has dinner covered. They recently sent me three separate meals. I, I messed around with the sesame soy beef ball. Awesome stuff. Jasmine rice, some ground beef action, uh, cilantro and carrots dynamite combination right there didn't think about it before i'm not a big fan of sriracha mayo but you can you can alter your recipes for sure they give you the cooking time the preparation time right on the the meal card such an easy to follow recipe the step-by-step those times are accurate you can have an amazing home-cooked meal very very efficient in less than an hour for for most meals probably less than 45 minutes with the majority of them that one the, the sesame soy beef bowl took roughly 40 minutes or so from start to finish, and it tasted terrific. Go to HelloFresh.com slash slab50. Use the code slab50 for 50% off, plus your first box ships free. So that's HelloFresh.com slash slab50, slab50, and start using America's number one meal kit today. All right, one pitcher who did make his Mets debut this past week, Kodai Senga, big offseason addition for New York. Big addition to their starting rotation. What were your first impressions of Kodai Senga and the signature ghost fork? It's to, to me the variance within that ghost fork. It's almost like he has two or three different variations or pitches within that, just that moniker of the ghost fork ball, which is a fantastic nickname. He's got the glove and the moniker on the glove, the little ghost and the pitchfork on his glove. Best glove I've seen in a while. Um you know, it just seems to me that he can make it move right to left, left to right. He can get more horizontal movement on it. He can get incredible depth and get vertical movement on it. It looks like he has an incredible feel for that particular pitch and can manip- can manipulate it. Whereas a lot of guys who throw split finger fastballs just kind of throw it as hard as they can and let it do whatever it does. Very few pitchers have that kind of feel within that particular pitch and be able to, to make it move and do what they want to command it. It looks like he's one of those guys to me that, that, that raises him up another level because yeah, you start looking for the splitter. It looks the same. You start to get a beat on it. If you're a hitter, you're watching the movement, the profile of it, it becomes a little predictable at times. It looks like he's got to counter that and he can make it do different things. As I said before. So yes, very impressive. Want to see more. But that was eye-opening to me. Like, whoa, this guy can make this thing dance a little bit. That ghost, that ghost forkball dances too as well. So uh, that was interesting to me to see him do that. 
Five and a third innings of one run ball on Sunday in Miami, a terrific MLB debut, specifically the ghost fork. The Marlins were one for 10 with all eight of those strikeouts against the ghost fork, which is an 80 grade name and immediately one of the most interesting pitches to me in major league baseball. I think the movement makes it one of the most interesting pitches. Like David was saying, I didn't realize how much command he had of the pitch to, to both sides. I mean, when he's facing lefty hitters, obviously drifting away from, from left to right. If you're looking at a home plate, completely different direction against righties. So I didn't realize that he was able to control it the way that he did against the Marlins. That makes it even way more impressive. And yeah, you mentioned the glove, David. He's got, got this blue glove with the, the ghost holding the, the pitchfork. Like he's a character. It's cool. You you want to you want to root for him to do well so you can continue to do this. There's there's some uh, certain humor to Kodai saying he's got a good personality and there are all the reasons why you want to see him succeed, succeed here. I want more. I want to, I want to keep seeing more of Senga now. I'm going to be paying close attention to how that ghost fork operates in, uh, in his next start. I so want that, that glove. Was, I want that yeah. glove. <laughs> it looked like the emoji, like the emoji we have on the phone, yeah. the ghost icon there. And then he had like a, the, the trident. It was really good glove. Yeah. Uh, 80 grade glove for sure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um... That was one thing that I really took away from the first four to five games here. And I thought the gents from, from talking baseball, they had a really nice theme going on their show earlier this week. So I'm stealing this from them here. If it's good, you know, you kind of take it. Uh, I'm going to gear it toward pitching though. When I ask this, what matters from the pitching that we saw in the first four to five games of the season? Uh, I think what matters to me is still, you know, you're seeing teams, obviously you, you can still manipulate the rosters and, you know, send somebody down like the Yankees did, uh, with, with Johnny Brito and get a reliever back on the roster, but it's kind of 13 and 13. You're still going to need starting pitchers to develop and give, get you through that third time in the order, which ones can, which ones can't. The ones that can become all the more valuable. So I, I also think that we've seen a subtle trend and back to starting pitching, being able to, to develop them and give them a chance to get the third time through the order. We know what analytics says. We know what the numbers say that most starting pitchers throughout the history of the game, their numbers get increasingly worse. And the more times through the order they, they go. And that's where the bullpen management comes into play. And that's where the most second guessing happens and fan bases get more riled up about pitching changes and bullpen management than anything else in the game today. But I still believe that along with the changes and the rules changes that there's a trend gearing towards starting pitching, getting a little deeper in the games and taking some stress off your bullpen because it's hard to go through 162 games and not having starters being able to at least give you five innings, maybe even six innings. If you're taking them out after four, the, the bullpens are going to get overworked. And I, that, that's a trend I think we're going to continue to see is starting pitching a premium on guys that can go deeper are worth their weight in gold. As far as what matters, I'm going to pour a little cold water and say very little at this point because the sample sizes are still so small. And like you said, Coney, we're, we're still so early that guys aren't fully stretched out. Teams are leaning on sixth, seventh, eighth starters who aren't as stretched out who aren't as big league caliber so leaning on these guys right out of the gate when it's the beginning of the season two you're gonna have to lean on the bullpen more but long term longer term yes i do think teams are gonna start to to stretch out the innings per start a little more we saw that a bit last year i think the covid season the lockout these things had a big effect on pitcher usage for a couple of years and now last year was we got a we got a full season out of it after the lockout now we have what we hope is a bit of a more back to normal season so now pitchers will be stretched out a little more and and, and go deeper into games 
I'm wondering how close we are from getting to a point where we look back on like the bullpen era. I don't know what you want to call it and think like, man, what were they, what were we doing? Like starting pitchers going four innings, but what were we doing here? Well, look, we're not, we're never going back to, you know, Jack Morris and, and, and all those, and all those guys going back to the eighties, because we are in the velocity era. We are maxing out. You don't manage your fifth, fourth and fifth starters, the way you manage the ace of the staff. So Sonny Gray talked about how he wanted the twins pitchers to go deeper into the games and that he was frustrated that, that pitchers were going, were going so much shorter with the twins last year. Well, his starters in the rotation with him were Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer. Those are not guys you want to go deep into games. You want the bullpen instead of them. So if you have guys that are good enough, then you can lean on them. Look at the Rays. They, they did, they pioneered the opener because they were short on starters. Now you're swimming in starters who are stretched out and you can give you innings, McClanahan, Springs, Rasmussen. They're not 200 inning guys, but if they're 150, 160 inning guys, that's a much bigger difference. Rays in polar opposite position when they were still having success. Nonetheless, um, I am going to jump to a conclusion here after what, four games or so. Um, the, the Phillies own for a start is a, a bit concerning here. Watched him Sunday night, watched him Monday against the Yankees. And just with, some things that was pouring over before the show, they could be putting themselves in a bad hole in April if they can't overcome some pitching deficiencies. Um, you, you don't want to set this kind of tone early in the year. They have injuries in, in the rotation. Some of their top guys in the bullpen are injured as well. And the reinforcements just like aren't throwing strikes to start the season. So it's kind of tough to wait around for them to find themselves. Obviously relievers, everybody kind of needs to, find themselves settle in but even if it's early if you have this many games in a row where your pitchers just simply aren't throwing those strikes uh, even if it's early it's dangerous and then when you look ahead to their schedule after an off day Friday they play 16 straight games this month now 11 of those are against the the Reds and the Rockies but they need to start throwing strikes or they're not going to be beating anybody that's part of it too. And, you know, I, Reese Hoskins is a big loss to them along with obviously waiting on Bryce Harper. Uh, Trey Turner's a great sign. He's been swinging the bat. Schwarber's really struggling out of the gate and that's kind of his MO. He's done that in the past where he, it takes him a while to get going. And then when he gets going, he hits home runs in bunches, but he's got one hit on the year right now. So that that's a big hole, especially with Hoskins out. So yeah, one thing leads to another. They're, they're having trouble scoring runs. Their offenses has been challenged. And their pitching staff's gotten beaten up. Texas beat them up down there, at least their first two games. Anytime you start out on the road like this and you get into a hole, man, it, it does get to get to you mentally. You know, they're going to reach – they got to get back and have their home opener, at least with a win on the board. They need to win one game before they have the home opener and get their rings from the National League Championship ceremony in Philly. Can you imagine that? Philly's going to boo them. They're going to get booed in their home opener. Getting the rings, getting the ring ceremony, and they're the defending National League champions. So, yes, it's Philadelphia. They're they're a strong, obviously very strong, boisterous fan base. It, it's a it's a tough one to follow right now for them. And uh, yeah, that you, you have to kind of raise an eyebrow and go, hey, stop the bleeding somehow, some way. And you hope Kyle Schwarber gets going because they really need him to be the run producer in there with Harper and Hoskins out. The lineup's great. And one reason for optimism with the Phillies pitching, how often are we going to see Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler get roughed up the way they did the first two games of the season back Very to true. back? So that's going to turn around as far as the, the rest of the staff it thins out. You know, they, they made a big signing for Taiwan Walker. Is he truly a, a formidable number three to go in with those top two pitchers and the cascading effect of, you know, getting into the bullpen earlier because your starter got roughed up. Then you're leaning on your, your better relievers. Then you got to bring in the depth guys. Monday's game at Yankee stadium was, was a case in point. You and your Marte was supposed to soak up a couple innings uh, mopping up, but he couldn't throw a strike. So he only got one out. Next thing you know, you got to go to Andrew Vasquez, another back end of the bullpen guy. He doesn't get you through the, the rest of the game. So then you got to lean on Sir Anthony Dominguez to pitch an inning in a, in a meaningless, you know, when you're down six, seven runs. So now that moves into the next game and the next game. 
So the, the pitching puzzle that Rob Thompson has to put together is very tough at this time of year. You're just waiting for guys like Ranger Suarez to get back. A uh, quick NL East note, as we're recording this, the Braves officially put Max Freed on the injured list now. Bryce Elder's been recalled. So uh, you have some questionable arms in terms of making up the depth with, with the Braves guys that have performed in the past. We'll see if they can do it again with Freed uh, going down, but not too much of a concern over there. There's a pitch, guys, that we've seen pop up over the last couple of seasons, and it's been coming up more and more around the game. We're seeing more of it now to start this season. That's the sweeper. So I thought it was a good time to kind of give a refresher on what makes the sweeper pitch. Some fans have been asking about that as well. So, David, a refresher course here on the on the sweeper pitch. What is it? Well, you know, by pitch design, it, it's, a, it's a pitch that you want to get a bigger, flatter break on, meaning more horizontal movement, more sweeping action. That action that's why they call it the sweeper, is you want it to sort of – if you're a right-handed pitcher, you want it to make a left-hand turn and keep running away from the barrel of the bat. It, it's designed to be a swing and a miss pitch or a, a, a weak contact-inducing type pitch because you're chasing a, you know, away from the barrel of the bat. Uh, usually it's done with a tweak of the grip. It's it's definitely, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, kind of like you get into the, the seam-shifted wake era of pitching where it's a kind of a pitching theory where if you can get the seams oriented right, you can get sort of that sweeping action on it. You can get a bigger break, sort of an unnatural, almost uh, more than expected from the hitter type of a break uh, on the pitch. And a lot of pitchers are going to more of a, a two-seam oriented type grip for a slider as opposed to a sinker. Most pitchers use the two-seam grip to kind of make it run and sink the other way. Now they're using using it to do the, to throw the sweeper and get kind of the seam-shifted wake effect on it. And to me, it's all about the seams. Now we can measure everything. You can see the spin axis. You can see how the seams are oriented. And then that greatly affects how the ball will move, how the ball breaks. Um, and certainly I've always said – People talk in baseball about the wind effect. If the wind's blowing out, boy, they're going to be home runs today. Well, if the wind's blowing out too, your breaking balls are going to break more too. Because if you're throwing into the wind a little bit uh, and you have the seams oriented just right, well, you can really magnify the break on the pitch. So a sweeping, sweeping slider is something that's more horizontal movement, more action side to side, east to west, as opposed to north and south. Right. So it's similar to a slider and – whether it's stat cast classifications or something that pops up on the score bug when you're watching the game, it'll, you know, you four seamer, sinker, slider, change up curve. So sweeper is in the slider family and credit to the stat cast folks this off season. They, they did cleave the sweeper and the slider into two separate categories. So we're, this is just a way to try and differentiate from that. Say it, say an Edwin Diaz, a hard, sharp downward break with horizontal. So it's going more diagonal as opposed to the, you know, the Yankees do this a lot. The whirly slider is what they've called it. The sweeper more, more is very little uh, up and down break, but very much side to side. Think like a, like a Michael King or a Clark Schmidt. That's my pet peeve with, with sinkers too. I think we need to do it on the fastball genre as well. And as a former pitcher, you know, everybody says, well, that's a sinker. No, it's not. That's a two seam fastball. Johnny Weiziga throws kind of a runner. Uh, you know, it, it takes off and runs inside on right-handed batters it's it's not a sinker you know a sinkers would what Derek Lowe threw you know that really has you know downward tilt to it so not not all two seam fastballs are sinkers not all uh you know not all sweepers are sliders so it's it just uh, like James very very much put it succinctly it's subsets within the category I think we need to get into the two seamer area now and what's a runner and what's a true sinker and what's a slider and what's a sweeper? It's kind of similar, you know, a counter counter uh, counterpoint to the to the sweeper. Yeah, credit to Statcast though. Uh, day by day, we're making progress here. So hopefully that's uh, next yeah. on the on the to do list as far as uh, pitch differentiations. Um, one thing that obviously came to a head over the weekend uh, in the Bronx, there there were. Or, handful of violations around the majors but there was a close game Saturday between the Giants and the Yankees Camilo Duvall who was nails in 2022 came on in a save situation before he even threw the first pitch of the inning he committed a, a pitch timer violation I'm wondering how closely should we be watching the demeanor of closers who are are working those pressure situations in the ninth inning and dealing with the pitch timer 
I think we should be watching everybody closer, especially the first week of the season. And I talked to Rob Thompson about this, uh, the Phillies manager, and he said, you know, well, yeah, we had the full spring training. Everybody knew what was coming. We made our adjustments in spring training, but everything's so scripted in spring training and it's much more laid back that everybody just kind of fell into it. We're all of a sudden in the regular season in the first week. And really, we can take this out to the first month of the season. The games matter. The decision-making process is much, it's, it's much more acute, uh, so to speak, in terms of, oh, I got to think of this through a little bit more as opposed to spring training. Just, okay, I'll just throw the pitch to the catcher calls. Uh, there's a whole a whole different adjustment period now that the games matter for these guys, especially short relievers. The games are on the line. It's not a spring training game. The results really matter. If I make a mistake here, if I have doubt and throw a pitch with less, less conviction, that's going to mess with my head. So that'll slow me down. And the next thing you know, you're up against the pitch clock and the pitch timer. So yes, it's something to follow. Yes. There's another, a whole different adjustment period in real games. And there was in spring training. So it's, it's going to take time. So they will adapt. The ones who don't adapt will get, will get left behind because you have no choice. You have to adapt, but yes, it, the, the, it takes time because it's the regular season. So it's a whole different subset of, of circumstances and variances now for these players to adjust to. The closers are the pitchers that I'm watching most closely during all of this transition period. A starter can get in rhythm and and they're kind of moving along, but you get into high leverage. And a lot of these hard-throwing relievers are the guys who originally took the longest time between pitches in the pre-pitch timer era. So if you're thinking of some closers that are, are at the top of the list as far as tempo and time between pitches, Giovanni Gallegos, Kenley Jansen, Emmanuel Class A, Devin Williams, Yoan Duran, Jonathan Loisaga. These are guys that uh, that we're going to have to watch a little more closely to see how are they adjusting to life with the clock. What do you say? Another month, like a full, like a good full month, month and a half before it becomes second nature. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. It, it's just how many appearances you have. Your first couple of appearances, you know, your heartbeat, your adrenaline rush. It's much different now than in spring training. It just, you know, it sneaks up on you. You feel rushed. It's more emotional, really, I guess. You know, it's more mental at this point where it, all of a sudden you feel rushed and then you start to panic and then the anxiety sets in and then you're prone to making more mistakes. And then when you're a short reliever and you make a mistake late in the game, it can cost you the ball game. And compared to a hitter who's pretty much playing every day, if you're five, six games into the regular season, uh, a reliever might only have one or two appearances under their belt. So the adjustment period might be a little longer for them. At the same time, there have been fewer violations than I, I would have guessed uh, go, uh, as, we, as we get going here. Violations were dropping every week in spring, but I was expecting a little bit more of an uptick as you get into the real games. All right, let's shift our focus to some Yankees chatter here. And something that kind of stuck into my head throughout the offseason is what the guys from Talking Yanks were uh, alluding to often where there were three main areas of concern that kind of worried you as far as the, the defensive alignment, the lineup construction, you had the left field situation with Aaron Hicks, you had third base with Josh Donaldson and you had IKF at shortstop. And they consistently said, we, we, we can't start a season with all th uh, three of those weak points in the lineup at once. The Yankees to their credit, they addressed some of them. You have Josh Donaldson, who's very much in a in a prove it stage, I think, and you know so far so good. But you don't have IKF at short, and you don't have Aaron Hicks in left field to start. Aaron Hicks did not start any of the three games in the first series of the season. And on the the Sunday afternoon game, the series finale, Isaiah Kiner Falefa drew a start in center field ahead of Aaron Hicks. Aaron Boone said he didn't like the Hicks matchup with Ross Stripling on the mound with San Francisco, but Hicks raised some eyebrows with the fan base taking a beating on social media. Uh, he told Brendan Cuddy that he didn't know what his role is on the team. And then when asked whether that was difficult for him, he said, quote, I mean, yeah, I just want to play. I don't want to come off the bench and face closers all day. I, I want to play the field. I want to play every day and it's just what I want to do. So again, he was, he was lit into on social media. The fans booed him when he was starting on Monday night in the opener against the Phillies. So that happened in a Yankee blowout, mind you, they were up eight to one for 
the second half of the game. So fans reaction toward Aaron Hicks's comments to Brandon Cuddy over the weekend, overreaction, underreaction, or a proper reaction. Yeah, I'll, I'll defer to our, our resident Yankee fan here. Let Dan Rourke, Rourke weigh in right now. I'm anxious now to I say, hear I opinion. say the Yankees chat and, and Dan Rourke pops up like Pavlov's dog. I love <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it came off very like wine job or a moan job uh, by Hicks there. I don't know. I went to this year, really, I was rooting for him. I still am, of course. And I was one of the fans I was saying, yo, new year, fresh start. Let's let's not boom. But one of the, this situation is one of those where I feel like I kind of get where you're coming from, but you got to think about, is this going to come off all that well to the media? And I don't think it does. I, I want to remind Hicks that he, he batted like 220 last year and was probably the worst player on the team. And I think he can have a role this year for sure. But I, I, I wonder why he, he brings up not wanting to face closers every day and wanting to, to start every day when, yo, like if there were a team that wanted you to start every day for the money you're being paid, you probably wouldn't be on this team right now. So anything, I think you should be grateful you even have a roster spot. And with that said, it, it actually makes me think a, a little high, higher of IKF because everything he said is, I think, like the right way to do this. What, is, what do we heard from him? I want to be a Yankee. I want to win. All we're hearing from Hicks now is I just want to play every day. I don't want to face closers, which that too, it kind of like almost seems like, pre-damage control like all right this is all i'm going to be doing facing closures i'm going to strike out every single time is the vibe that i get so reading that article uh once again i'm, I'm rooting for hicks i it didn't make me think higher of him though for sure that made sense yeah no no definitely. it's definitely spot on for a fan's perspective and certainly uh I'm sure as a veteran of podcasts that you've heard a lot of podcasts, you have your own. I'm sure that, uh, you know, that, that that's right on. My sense here is that Aaron Boone is kind of um, asserting uh, his opinions, his direction on this team a little more. I really feel like he's the one who pounded the table for Anthony Volpe to make this team. I think he's trying to sort of set up a meritocracy kind of a system. Hey, you're going to get your chances. If you hear Aaron Boone talk about Aaron Hicks, he's going to get his chance to play. But the reason that Oswaldo Cabrera got the starts in left field is because he did so well in spring training and he played well down the stretch last year. So it's, just, you know, it's kind of like uh, Aaron Boone is establishing his imprint on this team. And in an, in a time too, when people sort of think that the Yankees are so analytically driven, he's handed the lineup every night. He's just pushing the buttons they tell him to push. That's not the case. That's not what I'm seeing. It was Aaron Boone who made the switch in the playoffs last year to bench Isaiah Kiner-Falefa and get Oswald Peraza in the lineup. That was him. Uh, on background from some of the people we talked to in the organization, I know that to be true. And I think that this is Aaron Boone kind of saying, you know what? I'm going to pound the table here. I've been here a few years. This is what I want. Oswaldo Cabrera earned that start in left field. Aaron Hicks, you're going to get your chances. You're going to get your starts, but you better earn it. You know, and that's what he's trying to do here is set up who belongs, who deserves it. Aaron Judge even said that as captain of, of the Yankees about Anthony Volpe. Hey, if he's the best player, doesn't matter how old he is. It doesn't matter his contract status, whether he's on the roster or not. If he's one of the best players, he deserves to be here. Aaron Boone is fighting, is kind of feeding into that a little bit. And I think that's what we're seeing with Hicks. Hicks is like, wait, I thought I was going to play. Aaron Boone at the last minute started pounding the table, said, no, I'm going to start Oswaldo Cabrera because he's earned it. So we have kind of a Aaron Boone meritocracy going on here. And hey, I'm, I'm all for it. I think you have Boone asserting himself. And you mentioned Judge. I think you could put, you know, a guy like Garrett Cole, maybe Anthony Rizzo. On the, I think the, the pillars of the active roster are supporting Boone in that assertion as well. And that obviously can't be ignored. Right. And whoever plays better is going to play. But that means Oswaldo Cabrera is still going to get plenty of starts. Aaron Hicks is going to get time. Guys are going to move around. There's going to be days where Cabrera is going to be filling it in the infield, which opens up a spot in the outfield. Then Hicks can get a start. Guys are going to move around. I do think that Hicks has been treated pretty unfairly by the fan base it, overall in his Yankee career. He was not appreciated when he was a top five center fielder in the game for a few years. And look, the last couple of years have been very rough. But do you need to be booing the guy during the baseline introductions on opening day? It's like the guy has been blamed for all the shortcomings of the team over the last few years. If they fall short in October, everyone looks to Aaron Hicks, who's, you know what, like the 12th best guy on the team or whatever. So 
this is a guy that from 2017 to 2020 had a 120 OPS. He was top five among big league center fielders in home runs, on base percentage, slugging, war. And he was still seemed like he was just never liked by the fan base. So the, a lot of the fans, it seems like they have less credibility to be on him constantly when they didn't appreciate him when he actually was a, a, a top flight player. Well said. I, I, I agree with a lot of that. Uh, I, I probably should have given this context right before I posed the question though, but like I was, I was in the clubhouse when he was talking with Brendan Cuddy and this wasn't a situation where like Aaron Hicks was talking to a scrum of reporters who are wanting his reaction to seeing IKF in the lineup and he not being in the lineup. And he kind of just voiced how he was feeling. Aaron Hicks was asked a direct question by an individual and he gave him his, his honest answer. Was he maybe transparent to a, a fault? That could have been the case, but I don't think what he said in the first part was necessarily bad. Like if you're asked like, Hey, you know, how does this make, how does not having a role or not knowing your role make you feel? What exactly do you want him to say? Oh yeah, I'm cool with it. No, no rush needed to, to get some burn here. I'm, I'm fine staying on the bench. So I don't have a problem at all with him being that openly transparent. But then when he said, yeah, I don't, I don't want to face closers. Well, based on the current roster construction, I'm trying to have, um, I'm having a hard time trying to figure out who, could who could be first in line to come off the bench as, as a pinch hitter though so if you don't want to do that like david like james like dan were saying that's where you need to perform your way out of that role and he is going to get that chance so with with that part you know baseball media new york 101 here you know with that part he probably could have said hey boone's the manager he makes the decisions and and i respect that but maybe that's not how he feels maybe this is by design he wants to have that in the open wants to make that public i'm not sure but he was asked a direct question and he just gave an honest answer i don't think you could fault him for saying yeah i want to be playing every day that's the natural reaction for everybody yeah it, it feels it's well said if it, it feels like he got, got got caught off guard that once again aaron boone at the last minute starts sort of, sort of says you know what oswaldo cabrera earned it i'm going to start him in left field and maybe aaron boone or maybe aaron hicks didn't didn't feel like he was communicated to, or he wasn't sure where his, where his standing was. And then all of a sudden he's not playing. So, uh, you know, he can win him back, you know, and, and to Dan Rourke's point, I kind of agreed in a certain uh, instance and sort of like, you know what, when I get my chance, I'm going to win him back. That's what I would say. If I was Aaron Hicks, you know, I could still play, you know, when I get my chance, I'm going to take that job back. You know, I'm going to win the fan base back. You know, that that's, that's what I would say, but it's understandable. I good points all the way around. Right, that's probably like the the you know week the the worst thing that's come out of this four game stretch to start for the Yankees so far. They've won three out of their first four games. The pitching looks terrific. Their their hits uh, hitters broke out in a big way in the series opener against the Phillies. Overall, what intrigues you to start the season with the Yankees? Well, I think uh, you know it's to me what still intrigues me is that. You know, there was a real worry in spring training as one starting rotation member after another started to fall. And first it was Frankie Montas. And we're like, oh, geez, are we going to see anything out of Frankie Montas? And you start thinking about what you gave up. Oh, my gosh, there's no depth. You know, Walter Chuck and J.P. Sears are in Oakland now. And Hayden Wozneski's now in the rotation with the Cubs in the Efros deal. And it's like, oh, man, they have no depth. And then all of a sudden a kid named Johnny Brito shows up and lights it up the last game of spring training. And then his first start, it's sort of like, whoa, 96-97 with a two-plus pitches, a plus fastball that moves, kind of a two-seamer runner uh, as opposed to a sinker. Uh, pet peeve, again, uh, uh, notice on that. Uh, his is more of a runner, but it's good. It's good command. It's it's a plus velocity. His changeup is a plus pitch as well. When you're on the stuff plus meter, when you sort of rank each individual pitch, I've got him above average on his – change up and his fastball his curveball serviceable he drops it in there for strikes that is a huge lift for the yankees for aaron boone for their organization <clears throat> excuse me i think in spring training aaron boone was so relieved that day we we did the game on the yes network and i asked after johnny brito's performance that day i think it was five and a third perfect innings or no hit innings whatever it was it was great aaron boone was so relieved 
because he was, you could tell it was a huge concern for him. So to me, the, the story is under the radar, even though they sent him out after his first start, he's coming back. Johnny Brito to me is a huge story for the Yankees in, a, in an area where they have a, a real weakness in terms of overall depth. I'm intrigued by the pitching staff. You know what you're getting with Cole and Cortez up top. Brito was terrific. Clark Schmidt looked really good for the first three innings mm-hmm. of his first start before things kind of came apart in the fourth inning. But as he gets uh, stretched out a little more as a starter, you got to like his, his chances to, to go deeper into games. But it, the Yankees, they always have good pitching, no matter how many injuries come through. They always pull out somebody out of left field. The bullpen is year in, year out, fantastic, no matter who they put in. Ron Marinaccio looks fantastic. And as you start to think of, you think of maybe like a big five in the, in the back of the bullpen where you have uh, Holmes and Loisaga, uh, King, Peralta, and Marinaccio, he might be the guy that ends up emerging as, as that biggest late inning relief weapon. And he's been able to go multiple innings, but even further down the pecking order, Albert Abreu has been really good ever since he came back to his, uh, to the Yankees for his second stint. And uh, even a great story Monday night, it's a blowout. You get a couple, you know, you get a couple innings out of Ian Hamilton uh, coming back from a a terrible um, facial fracture with a line drive uh, in the minor leagues in 2019. He's, he's back in the big leagues and he's, you know, putting up a couple zeros for the Yankees uh, early in the season when they, when they need some pitching. So some really uh, good stories out of the Yankee pitching staff in this first week. The Slombio. (laughs) His cut changeup, nine for 12 whiffs last night. He got nine swing and misses on that Slombio last night. It looks like a slider. It's actually a changeup that cuts. Did, did you know what, what that combo in the name meant initially? Because I didn't know. Like I was searching for this. I'm like, well, how, do, how do you get a Slombio from slider changeup? But changeup in Spanish is cambio. So Yes. Makes, Spanglish. Yeah, exactly. Classic Spanglish. You know, where the, uh, the American guys that can't speak Spanish can tr- <laughs> and they try. You know, it, it's kind of a it's, it's a great conversation point in major league clubhouses and the interaction between the Latin players and the American guys trying to trying to communicate. So, yes, cambio cambio is change in Spanish and, of course, sliders. And it looks like a slider it was actually mm-hmm. classified as a slider on the Yes Network. And it, it, it the action on it is like is slider like, but it's a change up grip. So it's a real outlier pitch. It's something that. Other pitching coaches and other organizations kind of frowned on with him throughout his whole career. Tried to get him off of that. That pitch won't work for you. No, it's uh, that's not what a changeup supposed to do. It's not. It's not moving properly. And Matt Blake saw it and said, hey, "We love it. Keep throwing that thing." And now he's in the big leagues throwing the Slombio. Dan Rourke, what about you? Yeah. So uh, also real quick on the bullpen, um, I was impressed by Jimmy Cordero's stuff too. I mean, that guy throws some some gas. I was watching him. I was like, "All right, word, this is good too." But um, I'll flip it over to the offense. Glaber Torres, you know, I was pretty surprised this offseason, just like the how comfortable some people were the idea of trading him. And especially with at least going in, like the, the somewhat of concern we had over the depth of the lineup. And I'm just thinking this lineup without Glaber Torres, I mean, that, that'd be quite a big loss. And we're, we're seeing it, yo, weekend already hit two home runs. And I've mentioned it before, but even with arguably like the worst August of all time last year, he was still had a really solid 2022 season. I mean, 24 home runs, OPS right around 760. The defense we know is is good now. So there, there's a very likely world where unless Gleyber Torres falls off a cliff because of trade rumors again, I mean, he's a four or five or second baseman potentially. And then if that's the case, all of a sudden after this year, I believe he has, what, one or two years left to control? One more after this. One more yeah. after this. Kind of re-enter the conversation of Gleyber Torres might get a bag. So I know it's only a week in. I'm willing to, you know, I'm a Yankee fan. I can be biased. One of the best second basemen in baseball, Glaber Torres. So happy to see that weekend. Yeah, just just under a weekend, uh, you're seeing like a carefree version of of Glaber Torres, more more liberating. And Su- Susan Walbin and I have said this twice now on the post game show. Something happened with Glaber Torres at the World Baseball Classic and Team Venezuela. Whether it was observing some players like uh, Jose Altuve and Miguel Cabrera getting advice from players like that, we think something something clicked for Glaber and gave him a new perspective uh, about the game and just being a major leaguer, something, because, you know, she said it, things look different once he returned from, from the WBC. 
Yeah. Also, one other thing about Glaber that I'll always love, and this is really my main big thing with any player, is he loves being a Yankee. And that was quite clear in an article that came out a month ago. It was like, yo, been through some some tough times here. There's been the trade rumors, but in the end, this is where I want to be. This is my home. And kind of going back to how I was with like the Hicks thing before, in the end, I feel like to a lot of fans that that's how you win, win guys over is if you like being here, you want to win, you want to win in pinstripes. That's kind of like the, I don't know, like the ultimate comment I can hear or like the ultimate thing I can hear about a player. So that alone and the fact that he's playing well, like I'm, I'm ready for a big year from Glaber this year. James has been on this bandwagon for a while. He's the one who's reminded <laughs> us all along. Hey, this guy had a, what do you have a three and a half, four war last year, even with the four bad war. August. Yeah, yeah. He had a four yeah. war best of his career. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, uh, you know, he's not a true talent 38 home run guy. Like he was in the 2019 juice ball year, but if he's a, 20, 25 homer guy instead. That's plenty for a, a second baseman. 125 OPS plus in his first two seasons. Then he was kind of lost in the woods a little bit and the OPS plus dropped below average to 95, but he was at 114 last year. So he was much closer to the first two seasons than he was to the previous two seasons. And now I think he's primed for a good year. And for a lot of people who just wanted to trade him just to open up a spot, you got to make sure that what you're putting at second base is better than Glaber Torres over the course of 162. And that's hard to do. For sure. He could be playing himself into that number five spot in the lineup. That's going to be hard to, uh, to replicate if you still think that he should be dealt for something else. Uh, all right. Seems to wrap it up here for this week's episode. David, where are you at Sunday night? With Atlanta. We're down in Atlanta. So, uh, heading to hot Atlanta and, uh, you know, the, um, the thing about Sunday night baseball is, is that, uh, you know, we all really feel like, especially with a three man booth that you know, the, one of the, one of the things with, with broadcasting that's really impacted too, is jumping in, jumping out the type of broadcast we do on Sunday nights, kind of the national overview of everything. Well, we really got to narrow our focus and, and, uh, and watch the pace of the game and, and adjust as we go. So everybody's adjusting to the game umpires are adjusting players are adjusting short relievers managers broadcasters too yeah not just the closers it'll take <laughs> about a month and a half for everybody here yes all right that's gonna do it here for this episode this week please subscribe to our youtube channel so you do not miss a single episode or a big clip that you might be looking for that we're streaming each and every week for david Cohn, for james Smythe, for our terrific producer Daniel Allen Rourke. This is Justin Shackle. We'll talk to you next week on Till in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media.